the very original Star Wars, now known as Episode Four: A New Hope, it opens with a scene of Darth Vader invading Princess Leia's starship. Just watched it this morning. Of course, now, almost all of us will know who Darth Vader is, even if you haven't seen Star Wars. But for the original audience, when the movie first came out, this is their first encounter with Darth Vader. We know nothing about him at this point. All we've been told in that opening crawl, of the, the text that goes on the screen there, is that sinister agents from the evil galactic empire are in hot pursuit. And now this ominous figure, masked by a black helmet, enters the scene. Of course, as the series unfolds, we learn more about this ominous figure. But even still, it's not until the next movie, The Empire Strikes Back, that we discover his true identity as the father of our very hero, Luke Skywalker. This is not an uncommon strategy in films. Movies often begin by presenting a central character, but for a good while they kind of leave you in the dark, right? Not knowing who they are and what exactly is going on. Those making the movie want to leave you in suspense as you figure things out for yourself. Matthew's Gospel does pretty much the exact reverse of this. Right out of the gate, Matthew wants us to know who Jesus is. He doesn't want to leave us wondering or leave us in suspense. Matthew is concerned from the get-go to present the identity of Jesus. In these first two chapters, Matthew opens with a series of scenes related to Jesus' origins, his lineage, and his early childhood. And in each of these, Matthew situates these events as the fulfillment of prophecy, thereby showing us Jesus' Jesus's identity, who this Jesus is. Our passage today, Matthew 1, 18-25, emphasizes this, that the circumstances of his birth show the significance of this child. The significance of the child is shown in the very circumstances of his birth. We'll begin by looking at Matthew 1, 18-25. As Matt read for us, we saw that Mary and Joseph were betrothed. Betrothal is like an engagement, but it's different than our engagements today because it was legally binding. If you have the ESV, you'll notice it gives you that footnote uh, describing betrothed as legally pledged to be married. And so, to break it off would have been considered a divorce because it was a legal arrangement at that point. Before they had finalized and consummated the marriage that they were pledged to, Mary is found to be pregnant. So this isn't Joseph's child. Presumably Mary has been unfaithful and has gotten herself pregnant in the process. The righteous thing for Joseph to do, according to the law, is to divorce her. However, he is unwilling to shame her by doing this publicly, and so he decides instead to divorce her privately. However, before Joseph can go through with this plan, God sends an angel to intervene. And the angel tells Joseph in a dream that this pregnancy did not come about by the normal mechanisms. Rather, the Holy Spirit has miraculously caused Mary to become pregnant, despite 
the lack of sexual activity. The angels instruct Joseph to take the angel instructs Joseph to take Mary as his wife. And you can imagine Joseph, the position that Joseph finds himself in, how difficult it would be to make sense of all this and to actually do what the angel told him to do, right? You can imagine him thinking, if I marry her, it'll look like a tacit admission of my own guilt. It's going to seem like I'm the one who got her pregnant, which is precisely what they later accused Jesus of, of being an illegitimate child. Imagine Joseph thinking, do I really believe that this is where this child came from? And yet the text says that Joseph obeys. He takes Mary as his wife, and he further obeys the angel's instruction, and that he names the child Jesus. Now, Matthew constructs this account, the circumstances of Jesus' birth, in order to show how those circumstances fulfill Isaiah 7, 1 through 4. Matthew constructs the account to show how the circumstances of Jesus' birth fulfill Isaiah 7 through 14, or his conception more precisely. Now, look at verse 23 with me, where it says that this took place to fulfill, quote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this is a quotation of Isaiah 7, 14. And if you can go to the slide that we have, you'll see that, narrative, that Matthew has constructed the details of the narrative to fit this quotation, to point out the correspondence between the two. In the quotation, we see that the virgin shall conceive. In verse 18, we saw that before Mary and Joseph had come together, sexually speaking, that is, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Or in verse 20, that which is conceived, same word, in her is from the Holy Spirit. She is also, the prophecy also says that she will bear a son. This is exactly what the text says elsewhere in verse 21. She will bear a son, Mary that is. In verse 25, she had given birth to a son. And then there's this focus on the naming of the child. The prophecy says that they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so likewise, the angel tells Joseph in verse 21, you shall call his name, same words, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Or verse 25, and Joseph called his name, same words, Jesus. And so it's, we get the summary of this entire section in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. That's what Matthew wants us to pick up on. Matthew shapes his telling of Jesus's conception and birth to highlight how its details match those of Isaiah 7:14, thereby showing us that Jesus fulfills its prophecy. And this is what we see throughout this section, what we are focusing on in this series, is that in each of these sections, Throughout chapter one, Matthew 1 and 2, Matthew wants to show us how Jesus fulfills prophecy. Oftentimes, he quotes a specific prophecy to show that Jesus fulfills it. Again, the circumstances of Jesus' birth show the significance of this child. Now, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 7. Turn with me there. We're going to be spending a decent amount of time there. 
let's turn to this passage to truly understand how Matthew is using this quotation and what this means for Jesus to fulfill this passage. Isaiah, it's going to be roughly in the middle of your Bible. If you land in Psalms, it's going to be after that. Isaiah chapter 7. We'll begin in verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, Ephraim is another name for Israel, the northern kingdom, the heart of Ahaz, the king of the southern kingdom, Judah that is, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet. Do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim, again, that's Israel, the northern kingdom, and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says Yahweh God. It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus, the capital of Syria, that is, is resin. It's a mere human. And within 65 years, Ephraim, Israel, will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim, Israel, is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is merely the son of Remaliah, mere human. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So a little background on this passage. Assyria, Assyria, not Syria, Assyria, is the current military superpower of the day. Syria and Israel, to the north of Judah, try to form an alliance to get the surrounding nations to band together in order to resist Assyria. But when Judah, the southern kingdom, refuses to get on board with this alliance, Syria and Israel then turn on Judah, which threatens the stability of their local alliance. So they're going to attack Judah. They plan to depose Ahaz, who is king over Judah, and to establish in his place a puppet king, Tabeel, as we saw. And he then, presumably, will do their bidding, and they'll be able to form a more cohesive alliance. Ahaz and the people of Judah are understandably shaking in their boots by being threatened by these two northern kingdoms. But God sends Isaiah to tell Ahaz the falling. Syria and Israel's plan will not succeed. In fact, I will bring them to ruin. Do not fear. Simply have faith in me. Continue with me in verse 10. Again, Yahweh spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of Yahweh your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will, said, I will not ask, and I will not put Yahweh to the test. And he said, 
Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? In order to bolster Ahaz's faith, God graciously offers to give him a sign, proof that these things will indeed come to pass just as God had promised. Ahaz piously responds, I'm not going to ask God for a sign. I would never do that. I would never put God to the test. But as we'll soon discover, this isn't piety on Ahaz's part. Ahaz doesn't want a sign because Ahaz doesn't want to have to trust God to rescue them from this threat. Instead, Ahaz plans to look to Assyria to rescue them from Syria and Israel. Like, have you ever really wanted to do something and and you know that you've already made up your mind to do it, but then someone starts telling you reasons why maybe that's not the best idea, and you're thinking to yourself, like, hey, don't tell me that. You're ruining my plans. I want to do what I want to do. Don't, Don't mess with that. That's Ahaz here. Ahaz doesn't want to receive a sign of God's promise because he's not interested in receiving any further reason to trust God. He wants to do things his own way. Trusting God means leaving things in God's hand, but Ahaz wants to take matters into his own hands. Ahaz isn't interested in trusting God. He's going to seek out a more practical solution. And I want you to put yourself into Ahaz's situation Because we can face similar temptations today. Ahaz succumbs to political idolatry. His world is a threatening one. He feels threatened. But instead of looking to God for hope and security, Ahaz places his hope in his own political maneuverings, allying with Assyria to rescue him. Instead of trusting God to take care of them, he looks to powerful political forces like Assyria He seeks to achieve security and to establish self-preservation for himself through the compromised political figure that is Assyria. Assyria was, again, the military powerhouse of that day. It's like when you were playing, maybe if you grew up and you were playing football in the schoolyard and you're picking teams and there's that one kid that you simply pick because you don't want him on the other side. He doesn't want, you don't want him on the other team. He's an absolute brute. That's Assyria. You don't want to be facing off against Assyria. But Assyria was also nasty and downright evil. They were not one that you ought to form an alliance with. God says, trust me, Ahaz. You have God on your side. That's what Emmanuel means. God is with us. Our God is with us. You don't need to take things into your own hands, Ahaz. Least of all, should you get in bed with that evil nation, Assyria. As Isaiah goes on to show in chapter 7 and chapter 8, the same Assyria that they invite in to conquer their enemies ends up consuming them as well. As Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner puts it, by calling in evil to fight evil, Judah would find herself in the path of the very flood that she unleashed. And so we should expect God's judgment in response to this political idolatry and lack of faith. That would be the fitting response for God to judge Ahaz for this lack of faith, right? And also, we know elsewhere from Scripture, in 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28, if you want to read, these are the accounts of Ahaz's reign. We we know from those sections of Scripture that Ahaz was an incredibly wicked and evil king. 
He sacrificed his children to idols. He offered the gold of the temple to Assyria as tribute to get him to come to his aid. He worshipped the gods of the surrounding nations and he built idolatrous altars in the place of God's actual temple. By no means does Ahaz deserve to be shown any mercy here. But amazingly, despite Ahaz's unfaithfulness, God nonetheless provides Ahaz a sign that he will rescue Judah from Israel and Syria, even though Judah will still then face the consequences for colluding with Assyria. God gives him a sign that he is, in fact, despite Ahaz's unfaithfulness, he's going to rescue them from Syria and Israel. But they will face the consequences, nonetheless, for colluding with Assyria. God will preserve his people. Despite Ahaz's wickedness and rebellion, God intervenes to save them. He graciously gives Ahab a sign of this, despite his unfaithfulness. We get that in verse 14 and following. Therefore, Ahab, remember Ahaz refuses a sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin, or literally it's the woman of virgin age, so a young woman, sometimes this is translated. Behold, the virgin-aged woman shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The word Emmanuel means God with us, as Matthew tells us. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread, that is Syria and Israel, they will be deserted. Yahweh will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim, that is the northern kingdom of Israel, departed from Judah. He's going to bring the king of Assyria on you. So we get the promise of a virgin and this child being born from her, or this, this virgin-aged woman, and the, and the child is going to be named Emmanuel. In verses 15 and 16, we see that the sign is that before this boy is even old enough to start discerning between good and evil, okay, so that's a very young age, whatever age that is, before, that, before the child develops to that even very young age, God is going to devastate Judah's attackers, Syria and Israel. But, as we see in verse 17, even as, Judah will, well, even as that occurs, Judah will nonetheless face the consequences for colluding with Assyria. Now, if we turn over, we'll skip some verses, we'll turn over to chapter 8, we see something of the immediate initial fulfillment of this sign. In verses 8, 1 through 4, Then Yahweh said to me, to Isaiah here, Take a large tablet and write on it, in common characters, belonging to, Maha, to Maher Shalal Hashbaz, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jer- Jer- Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then Yahweh said to me, Call his name Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Say that four times fast. For the boy, before the boy, knows how to cry my father and my mother, the wealth of Damascus, that's the capital of Syria, and the spoil of Samaria, that's Israel, 
it will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Okay, so what's happening here? Isaiah's wife, the prophetess, conceives and bears a son. And they name him Mahar Shalal Haspaz. And that means, as you might see in your footnote again, quick to plunder, swift to carry away the spoil. So the name of this child signals that Judah's enemies, Damascus and Samaria, or Syria and Israel, will be quickly destroyed. Their, their spoil will be quickly carried away. That's what the name of this child signifies. You notice the interpretation in verse 4, which matches the prophecy we saw in chapter 7, that before the boy is old enough to know good or evil, or here it's to say my dad or my mom, Israel and Syria will be plundered and her spoil speedily taken away, just as the boy's name signifies. In other words, this is the initial fulfillment of the sign that God promised to Ahaz in chapter 7. Read verse 18, for instance, where uh, it says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given to me, Isaiah speaking here, his children, are signs and portents in Israel, and so forth. His children, with these unique names, his other child, his, the name of the first child, is that a remnant shall return. And then now this child, where the, the prey will be speedily taken away, the names of his children are signs. And so this child here, this second child that we've encountered, is the initial fulfillment of that promise in chapter 7. But we are nonetheless one left wondering if maybe there is more to this promise. Look with me at verse 5 through 10. Yahweh spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. They're rejoicing over the destruction of those two kings. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria, in all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. Not all the way, but to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For Emmanuel, God is with us. Literally, the word Emmanuel there in Hebrew. So as God brings judgment, Assyria will overtake Judah like a flood. They will reap the consequences for their collusion. But notice in verse 8 that the land of Judah is designated as Emmanuel's. And in 9 through 10, the reason Judah can have confidence in her ultimate deliverance is because, Emmanuel, God is with us. In other words, this seems to be anticipating something more than just Isaiah's son, Mahershalal Hasbaz. This Emmanuel child is someone who ultimately makes claim to owning the entire land of Judah. Is this a royal figure, like a king? It's one against whom the Assyrians are ultimately bringing their assault, he says. And he's the one on whom final deliverance ultimately rests in verse 10. 
And so we keep reading until we reach chapter 9. Read with me chapter 9, starting in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian, when Gideon defeated the Midianites, remember? Light is shining on God's people. The, the nation is being increased and, and joy is abounding. Verse 5, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. You don't know, need war boots anymore. You don't need those garments. He's putting an end to the war. Verse 6, Why? How does this kingdom come about? For to us a child is born. A child being born? That sounds like the promise in chapter 7. The sign of a, of a promised child. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. He will be a king who knows how to give counsel, who knows how to make wise decisions. He's nothing less than mighty God. The everlasting Father. His, not that this is identifying God the Son with the, the, the Father as the person of the Trinity, but he's a fatherly, as a, as a king, he exercises fatherly care for his people. And he's the prince who brings peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, of, of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David, that's not Isaiah's kid. Isaiah's not from David's line. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh, of the armies, is the one who will accomplish this. A child from the line of David who will rule and restore God's kingdom. And so as we turn back to Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, what is Matthew doing? Matthew reads Isaiah 7 through 9, and he puts these pieces together and sees their fulfillment as occurring in Jesus. He is arguing that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this Emmanuel child. Jesus is the Emmanuel child come to save. His mother is quite literally a virgin. He is quite literally Emmanuel. He does not merely signify that God is with us, but he is quite literally God with us. And he is the ultimate son of David who comes to reign and restore God's kingdom. Jesus, more literally, if we can say that, fulfills Isaiah 7.14. We see the virgin birth. As with, I, as with Ahaz, so too here, despite his people's sin, God nonetheless intervenes to save his people. If virgin birth doesn't scream that God is intervening, then I don't know what does. There are few things that better communicate that God is the one acting here to bring about salvation than God miraculously intervening to cause a virgin to become pregnant with one who will be our Savior. 
The virgin birth is a miraculous means of the incarnation, the mysterious mechanism by which the second person of the Godhead becomes human. God becomes man in the virgin birth, and he does this in order to save us, in order to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we deserved. When God's people over and over again prove unfaithful, He proves his faithfulness by entering into our story on our behalf. God tells us not to take matters into our own hand, but we do it anyways. And so God responds by taking matters into his own hands, and he saves us. We see the virgin birth. We see Jesus as Emmanuel. As such, Jesus is quite literally God with us. As the Gospel of John opens up, John 1.14, And the Word, God the Son, became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. Jesus is the true temple. The temple was where man used to go to meet with God by means of atonement. Now in Jesus and his atonement, he is where we are reconciled to God. And so Jesus can say in John 14.9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He is the son of David, verse 20. And by Matthew including that mention as the angel addresses Joseph as son of David, he is signaling that Jesus, the one who will be the stepchild of Joseph, legally his child then, is in David's lineage, legally speaking. As Isaiah 9-7 said, this promised child will rule on the throne of David and over David's kingdom. Or as Isaiah 11 goes on to say, which we didn't have time to look at, but it anticipates the shoot from the stump of Jesse, Jesse being David's father. So Jesus is born of a virgin. He's Emmanuel. He's son of David. And he is savior from sin. The way that Jesus achieves this kingdom, he is the king. But the way he achieves this kingdom is by saving its citizens from their sins. Read Matthew 1. 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The the name Jesus is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Joshua. Yah, Yahweh, Shua, saves. Joshua means God saves, Yahweh saves. And that is what Jesus' name means. He is the true Joshua who saves and brings us into the promised land, who conquers the foe. But the foe here is specifically and most centrally our sin. You see, the people expected a Messiah, they expected a Savior, but they expected it to be by more earthly political means. Jesus deals with our ultimate problem, which is nothing short than sin itself. As we read in Isaiah 9, the coming king will restore God's kingdom. He will bring in shalom. Under his rule, God's will will be done on earth just as it's done in heaven. This is going to be an absolutely incredible state of affairs. That nothing short of recreation, as Isaiah will later say. This is paradise reachieved. And that's great, but each of us should immediately be asking the question, How can I, a sinner, ever gain citizenship in that kingdom? Each of us is like Ahaz. We haven't trusted God. We have sought to do things our own way. We've rebelled. We're not neutral bystanders. 
We are criminals before this king's rule. We have committed treason against his sovereign claim over us. Each of us has done this. Each of us is deserving of this king's judgment. But just as with Ahaz, God has shown us grace despite what we deserve. He has provided Jesus, the long-awaited child, come to save his people from their sin despite their sin. Jesus is the king who achieves his rule by dying for his subjects. He pays the penalty for their crimes and he grants rightful citizenship for all who trust in him, looking to him for that salvation. And Matthew introduces Jesus to us by telling us that he will save his people from their sins. That's how he introduces Jesus. By the end of the book, he's going to show us exactly how Jesus does this. He goes to the cross bearing our sins. King Jesus substitutes himself on the cross for criminals, paying their crimes and thereby giving them rightful standing as citizens in his saving kingdom. And if you're here today and you haven't yet trusted in King Jesus for salvation, that is our call to you to trust in Jesus to be saved from those crimes and that penalty. Matthew's message is this, that the circumstances of Jesus' birth show the significance of this child. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Emmanuel child to come to save his people from their sins despite their sins. We are like Ahaz, unfaithful, rebellious, but as with Ahaz, God has graciously intervened to rescue us despite our sin. We weren't looking for this salvation. Like Ahaz, we even resisted God. The image isn't that of us longing to be saved, simply waiting for God to sort of meet us in the middle. No, we were dead in our sins, fully content to do things our own way. But God intervened despite us. And that's what the virgin birth declares that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, Galatians 4. He intervenes to save. We can appreciate this truth, I think, by asking, what would the world be like if this wasn't real? If this wasn't true? What would life be like if this wasn't true? We would be absolutely hopeless. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we would be without the Messiah, without hope, without God in this world. We would be lost in our sin, resigned to our rebellion with no prospects of a remedy. But we praise God that indeed he has intervened in Christ to save us despite ourselves. And so ours now is to live lives of appreciation and gratitude for this grace. Secondly, this passage also helps correct our misplaced hope, our misplaced faith, putting faith in things where it ought not to be. Because like Ahaz, we are tempted to look at other things besides God for our hope and security, to make idols out of things, to look to them for our salvation, so to say. Grasping at our own self-preservation, we get in bed with corrupt political figures instead of trusting God. 
Or maybe we put our faith in financial security. Or like Ahaz, we look to the nations around us and place our faith in their gods, expecting them to provide us significance and happiness. Whatever the case may be, what are you tempted to put your faith in instead of God? One of the messages of Isaiah and Matthew here is don't put your faith in those things. Those things cannot save. Don't fear. Instead, simply trust God with Christ being the true Savior that God has provided. Look to him. He is the Savior that we need. And it's his kingdom that we look to ultimately for hope, not the kingdoms of this world. As God instructed Ahaz, just listen to these words as God communicates his care to Ahaz, even despite Ahaz's unfaithfulness. He says, Ahaz, be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint. Don't let your heart be faint. You don't have to fear. Trust God. Or as God similarly instructs Isaiah later on, in chapter 8, verses 12 through 13, he says, Isaiah, don't, don't call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. They're all getting hung up on all these different things going on with the different nations around them. Don't fear what they fear, nor be in dread. You don't need to fear what the people of this world fear. But the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, that is, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And as God offered Ahaz a sign as a guarantee of his promises, so too, believer, God has given us signs to strengthen our faith in his promises. Baptism in the Lord's Supper. The virgin birth tells the story of God miraculously intervening to save his people despite themselves. And the Lord's Supper is God's sign to us showcasing that very thing as well, that God the Son has become flesh. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, the, the, the bread and the cup signifying Christ become human, God born of a virgin, body and blood. And he has done this, intervening, as Matthew says, to save his people from their sins. Believer, your faith has found a resting place. Let it rest squarely on Christ.